and I'll introduce our speaker for tonight, Ida. Hi, my name is Ida. I'm a compulsive reader. Hi, Ida. I spoke here about uh, five five years ago, and uh, when I was asked to speak tonight, he said he, I could come and you know update. And so I thought, what am I updating from? So I listened to myself yesterday online. That was really good. You know, I just... <laughs> it was, you know, I, I talked all about my first year and hitting bottom and so forth. And, and uh, it was a pretty good newcomer pitch. Uh, but I can't guarantee anything tonight. The last time I spoke at a meeting, I could not put a sentence together much less two sentences. I mean, I couldn't get one sentence together. I was all over the place. I kept floating around and changing the subject in midstream and just everywhere. And afterwards, I just kind of buried my head and told everybody I was sorry. And they uh, smiled sweetly and applauded anyhow. And then uh, when it was time for pitches, this man says, um, you know, I rather enjoyed your stream of consciousness. He said, he said, I'm used to it, you know, in AA, but they're drunk when they do it. You know? <laughs> so it wasn't my imagination. I was really all over the place. So I'm going to try to stay focused. I went to the birthday party this weekend, and I, I went the whole weekend. Well, we left at 10 in the morning, but I... I you know, stays at the hotel, did the whole thing. I, a year before, I'd only come on Saturday, and it just wasn't enough, and I didn't feel a part of. And so my husband and I checked into the hotel, and, and we did the whole thing. And I really went. I don't go. I don't go to the birthday party. I don't go to conventions to hear speakers. Although I do hear speakers, I actually go to see people. And uh, it, I've worked on a lot of region two conventions. And I loved work putting them together, but I hated going to them. <laughs> Until about, oh, 17 years ago, I gave myself permission to just hang out in the hallways. Didn't have to go to any meetings. I could just uh, visit with people. And all of a sudden, I wasn't there to work anymore. You know, I wasn't there to uh, be serious and grim. You know, uh, have the, the idea of having fun in Overeaters Anonymous was a completely foreign concept to me for several years. I did not come to OA uh, to uh, be happy. And I never thought that OA would make me happy. And so when I've had problems, I haven't been disappointed because I never thought that things would be perfect. I came to Overeaters Anonymous, actually it'll be 32 years in April, so I was getting close to 32 years. And uh, I've been abstaining from the beginning, so in April I expect, <laughs> I expect to uh, celebrate 32 years of continuous abstinence, but right now I have uh, uh, 31 years and 11 months. <laughs> I know. So, and uh, I've, uh, I'm the 100-pounder. I lost uh, 100 pounds in my first 14 months, and I've been maintaining it ever since. So, there we go. <laughs> we'll get that. So, anyhow, so, uh, as soon as I got to the hotel, before we got into the building, I started running into people. 
And it was just wonderful to see. Uh, thanks to my service, I know people from all over the state. And so, and some of these people I only see at these special events. And uh, it makes it really special to see them. So, another lady and I and my husband, we were walking down the, the hall to our uh, rooms, and there was a woman in front of us. And when we started to approach her, she turned around and she said, Hi, are you here for the birthday party? And I said, Yes. And she said, So am I. And she says, I'm from Tennessee and I don't know anybody here. And uh, I said, Hi, my name is Ida. And she goes, Ida, I've heard you online. You know, I go, Thank you, light a candle. You know? <laughs> and then when they said that, uh, like 90 countries have gotten hit, you know, and I'm thinking, somebody in China could have heard my pitch. Mm-hmm. God, I hope I said something worthwhile, you know. Uh, and I'm just going, this is incredible. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, that website alone and the Light a Candle meetings justifies the existence of the Los Angeles Intergroup because that is really carrying the message. And it's really carrying the message. So uh, we talked to this lady briefly, and then the following night I saw her standing out in the uh, out in front of the uh, the banquet, and she was obviously alone. So I went over and I grabbed her and uh, invited her to join us for dinner. So we got to sit together, and she was a delightful person. And we talked and talked, and I don't know how the subject of my food plan or whatever came up and she said, oh yes, uh, you're the one who uh, lost 100 pounds on frozen pizza and you're not willing to gain it back to lose it the correct way. And I said, that's me. And I said, you remember that from when you heard it? And she said, well, I listened to you again last night to make sure it was you that I heard it. And, and that was what I put on that tape and that's the truth. I lost my weight on uh, Celeste frozen pizza. They don't even make the size anymore. They used to make a two-serving two size. And nudes and yogurt before it went sugar-free. <laughs> and I truly am not willing to gain a bath to lose it on lettuce. <laughs> I didn't eat lettuce my first year. I didn't eat much my first year. But, I, you know, lettuce was not high on my list. And uh, I didn't know how to buy a good apple if I had to, you know. And actually, uh, I, I lost my weight on processed foods. And uh, it was after I lost my weight that I started uh, to discover that um, the, the world of fresh produce. <laughs> and I truly don't care what you eat. I just don't care what you eat. I, for me, I don't believe that there are any abstinent foods, only abstinent meals. And after one of the panels, I walked out uh, afterwards and I saw a friend of mine in the hallway and I took hold of him and I said, am I the only long-timer who eats sugar and flour? And he said, no. I'm sure there are others, they just don't talk about it because we still have a prejudice against people who eat sugar and flour and don't believe in God and all kinds of stuff. That's part of my story. The fact is that I've never been a sugar and flour abstainer. Yes, I weigh and measure it. 
Yes, I weigh and measure my ice cream. If you don't, if you can't do that, don't. <laughs> but don't, don't tell me that I can't. Okay. I've had people try. <laughs> many years ago, I had a woman who uh, had a couple couple years at the time, and already was a legend in her own time, uh, tell me that I could not continue to abstain eating the way that I was. And I just said, oh, and backed away from her and continued to do what I knew what was right for me. And a few years ago, a lady uh, came up to me and told me that I was not spiritual because I weighed and measured by food. <laughs> that I was not trusting God. What a load of bullshit. <laughs> The next week, she made amends to me. She had one uh, one week of abstinence and knew it all, and decided to set me straight on you know what uh, what shouldn't what I shouldn't be doing. The fact is is that I started weighing and measuring my food immediately, and it was because because I was and I continue to count calories, and the only way I could count calories was to know exactly how much I was eating. And some years ago, when the co-founder of Overeaters Anonymous said at a meeting that she had started to count calories, I just looked at her and thought, well, what took you so long? You know, and, uh, and I can just see people looking at me. I mean, some of you are just looking at me going, oh, shit. But this is what has worked for me. So I weigh and measure my food when I'm at home. And I, and I don't have any, you know, this business of red light, green light, yellow light foods. I don't have any green light foods. I don't have any red light foods. Everything that goes in my mouth has to be moderated in some way. I sponsor some people who count points, and they have free foods, and I just have to laugh every time I hear of a no-point food. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, now, at the same time, I've never put lettuce in a cup, but I have a bowl, and I fill it until the lettuce starts to fall out, and then I quit, you know, and that's how I measure my lettuce. But I, I just... I just hit upon this concept that I cannot have any food that, that if I eat it, I'm not abstaining. Because that's daring me to do it. Now, does that mean I eat everything on the planet? No. You know, I quit eating uh, stuff at the beginning because it wasn't going to help me lose weight. And so, help me God, I was not going to continue to live in the body that I came to this program with. I was desperate to lose weight. And so I, when I was selecting my food, I would go, is that going to help me lose weight? And so one day at a time, I didn't have apple pie. And then a year went by, and I hadn't had apple pie. And then two, three. So now it's almost 32 years, and I haven't had apple pie. And the fact is, is that I don't want it 
absolutely don't want it. The thought makes me sick to my stomach. If I eat apple pie, does that mean I'm not abstaining? Not unless I eat all of it. (laughs) Anyhow, I didn't know I was going to talk about food tonight. uh, So, oh, staying out of, okay, this business of weighing and measuring. When I came in, I was a uh, weigher and measurer, and, but I eating sugar and flour. I didn't belong with the other people who weighed and measured, and I didn't belong with the people who didn't weigh and measure. I didn't belong anywhere. So what I did was I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't tell anybody how I ate. And finally, um, I remember the first time I spoke in Orange County, I, the first thing I said to them was, I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you this, and then some of you are not going to hear another thing I say. And uh, I was absolutely convinced that after I said that I sure there were people there who didn't hear another thing I said. So anyhow, let me go ahead with this. God, what's happened in the past five years? Well, not much. I went to the doctor 14 times last year, and I'm a healthy person. I, um, I am so much a compulsive overeater. I, I t- truly believe I came into the world this way. Uh, the two things that I was born with was a compulsion to eat and a compulsion to die. I'm, in fact, I remember my death wish before I remember food. And I don't know that they're so far apart. You know, I don't believe they're not so far apart. I wanted to die as a child so that I could see Jesus. And uh, I, <laughs> and I used to lay in bed, and while other girls were dreaming about, you know, becoming Miss America, I was dreaming about dying. And one night I, I woke up and I looked up, and oh my God, there was this blue cross hanging right in front of me, and I thought. <gasps> finally died. And I kept looking at it. And then I suddenly realized it was a glow-in-the-dark crucifix hanging on my mirror. And I was kind of disappointed. <laughs> but uh, this, uh, this has been a recurring theme all of, all of my life until I got into program. My first uh, childhood experience with food that I remember really kind of sums up my uh, inventory. I I couldn't have been more than maybe four years old, and my brother uh, lived next door, and one night he and his kids and his wife were making ice cream with those old-fashioned crank kind ice cream uh, makers, and they were cranking away, and I went from my house over there, and I said, I want to crank. And he said, no. And I went home, and I sat on the sofa, and I thought about it. And then I went back over to him, and I looked up at him, and I said, my mommy and daddy told me to call you a goddamn son of a bitch. (laughs) And he laughed. At me, he did the worst thing he could. He laughed at me, picked me up, threw me on his uh, shoulder, carried me home, dumped me on the sofa, and said, "You know what she said?" <laughs> and my parents went, "Oh, 
eat it. Don't do that. But you know what? It summed up my life. I, there was food, and there I was already not wanting to accept responsibility for my behavior. I was blaming. My mother and father told me to say that, you see. And that pattern continued with me until I got into Overeaters Anonymous. For many years, I wanted to be a nun. Obviously, I didn't make it. <laughs> but I, I desperately wanted to be a nun. And here was why. Somebody would tell me when to get up. Somebody would tell me when to pray. Somebody would tell me when to get dressed. Somebody would tell me when it was mealtime. Somebody would tell me where I was going to work, what time to go to bed. I wasn't going to have to be responsible for myself at all. I wouldn't be earning any money. I wouldn't have any money of my own. I wouldn't have to be fiscally responsible or financially responsible. Nothing. You know, I didn't want to have to be responsible for myself. So what I did instead was I became a, a public school teacher, which, you know, and wasn't that far removed as far as I was concerned. And I, you know, I was going into a profession that was uh, meant for women. It was sacrificial. It was, you know, I would be working towards sainthood. But what I wasn't planning on was becoming a union activist, which is exactly what I did, and organizing telling my principal where to go and filing grievances and all this and saying and standing up and saying I'm worth more money you know I wasn't planning on it I didn't want to have to do any of that kind of stuff so I I got into the food I started gaining weight the, the picture showed about the fourth grade and that's when I really started blossoming I have no idea what happened? What triggered what triggered it? But I don't know that it had to have anything specific. I mean, I'm just a compulsive overeater and food works for me. My father was an alcoholic and he died of alcoholism on my 20th birthday. So he's been dead. I'm 61 now. And so he's been dead you know, 41 years. And my mother was a compulsive overeater. And everybody in my family has the disease in one form or another, mostly compulsive overeating. There was only one other alcoholic. All the rest of us uh, have food issues. I have one remaining sister. Everyone else uh, in my nuclear family is, is dead. And one remaining sister has diabetes. And is doing very well with it right now. So uh, my first diet was in the fourth grade. My mother took me to a pediatrician who put me a growing child on an 800-calorie-a-day diet and put my mother in charge of it, a woman whose top weight was 250 pounds. Now, that didn't work. The one thing that uh, happened to me during that time that stuck with me was that they put me on skim milk. So you know what I did. I drank twice as much, and that is what I did. And to this day, I will not have skim milk in my house. I use half and half in my coffee. Even at home, I will not use skim milk for anything. Okay. 
And then the next time I was uh, going on a diet was, uh, what, 13, 14 years old. My mother took me to my first pill doctor. I did pills three times as a teenager. And it was, um, the last time was the worst. It was when I was at my top weight, which was 240. And uh, at that same time, my father was drunk around the clock. When I found, when I wrote my inventory, what I found out that was, God, I'm going to run out of time. When I found out when I wrote my inventory was that my disease and my father's disease ran right down the same tracks. We were absolutely parallel. The more he drank, the more I ate to the point where when I hit 240, he was drunk around the clock every day. So my mother hauled me off to another pill doctor. And this was the kind where you went in the front door the waiting room, sat there, then the nurse took you in, weighed you, sat you down, the doctor came in, looked at your fingernails, looked into your eyes, and you went down the hall, sat in another waiting room where there was a little door in the wall, and after a while, the door would open, and the arm would come out and give your name, and you would take the pills and go out the back door. Mm-hmm. And I lost 60 pounds on that. I lost 60 pounds uh, during one of the worst times of my life. I was going to UCSB at the time. I lasted one semester. Talk about culture shock. Holy crap. And this was 1965. And uh, one day I was carried into the health center after a PE class. (laughs) I I was taking 21 pills a day, seven at each meal. And uh, living in the dorm and binging my guts out. And so the, um, the doctor put me on Librium without asking me if I was on anything else. So for one glorious day, I took diet pills and Librium. <laughs> <laughs> when I quit taking those pills, I, well, I threw away the pills eventually. Within a couple months after that, I threw away the pills and I decided then that if I couldn't be thin without diet pills, I was going to stay fat for the rest of my life. And I believe that was when I took step one. I admitted I was powerless over food. And you know where it got me? Nowhere. Because it isn't until step two that there's any way out of the disease. When I hear people talk about being at, going back to step one because they started over again, I go, oh no, sweetheart, go back to step two. Because you don't believe there's a way out yet. I was talking to uh, somebody I sponsor, and she was a con- uh, constant slipper, constant slipper, con- and she said, one morning, I'm going back to step one. I'm, I'm powerless over food. I'm going back to step one. And I had heard it before, and I, and I thought, I can't hear this again. And I just said, you are not going back to step one. You are not admitting you are powerless over food. What you are saying is that this time you're going to be perfect. And I said to her, you know what? You're an emotional bulimic. You're going back to step one is like throwing up the guilt. 
You throw up the guilt, and then you're going to be perfect from then on. And I said, you know what? Until you accept the fact that you are never going to be perfect in any area of your life, including the food, you're stuck. And until you believe that you have a way out, you're stuck. So I went on, uh, let's see, from, for the next 10 or so years, I hovered around 180, and I got up to 210, and I got down to 150 back in the early 70s. And I was going, I was doing well, you know, I looked pretty good. I was 150, and I didn't look too bad. And uh, that was it, so I started eating again, and uh, three years later, in 75 pounds, and I really fought it, but I gained 75 pounds back, and I came to Overeaters Anonymous, walked into that first meeting, and as I heard my a speaker say this morning, never looked back. Because I could not stand being fat any longer. It was simply too humiliating. I have all kinds of stretch marks. My husband calls them uh, my battle scars, and he tells me that I won the war. And uh, that's that's the way I feel about it. I uh, one time I was at my uh, at my uh, gynecologist, and he asked me how many children I've had, and I said none, and he just was stunned because you know my body looks like I had a lot of them. Uh, I've had some really interesting experience with doctors. I remember once I was having a, a cervical biopsy, and if, if the ladies who've ever had one, you know what I'm talking about. No anesthesia. They just go in with scissors and start clipping. And uh, I started crying. I started crying. And I raised my head up so that the tears wouldn't go into my ears. And uh, the nurse says, I'll get you a cookie. <laughs> and I said, I don't want a cookie. And she said, I'll get you a cookie. It'll make you feel better. <laughs> and, you know, I said, I, no thank you. And she did go off. She didn't bring anything back. And the truth is, is that, you know, maybe in a previous life, the cookie might have helped, you know, but uh, it was too late. You know, for me, the cookie was not going to going to help me. And what a strange thing, you know, that I should have twelve scepter right then and there, actually, but I I didn't because I was too concentrated on what I was going through. Right. I've had a. I mean, there's an analogy to my ear infection. For years, I had headaches, and I and I discovered that I had an ear infection. The doctor gave me medicine. He said, finish the course. Take all of the medication. Put all those drops in your ear. And, of course, as soon as I started feeling better, I quit putting the medication in my ear. And so what happened? The fungus grew back. You know, it, and it really is like, you know, working the steps. And you start coming to meetings. You feel better. You quit doing the work. And guess what happens? The fungus grows back. You know? And so I... 
after a couple cycles of that, I realized I really do have to take my medicine. And it's the same way with 12 steps. The funniest thing I heard at the birthday party was from a lady who admits to having a potty mouth. And she said that the 10th step is like toilet paper. If you don't use it for three days, people notice. (laughs) I tell you, you know, I was taking notes during the birthday party, and but I really didn't have to write that one down because I knew I was going to remember that. But you know, it's the truth. You know, I need, I have to keep. I have to keep working. Uh, I have to keep working my program. So, what do I do on a daily basis to work my program? Number one, I abstain from compulsive overeating. I weigh and measure my food. I eat three times a day. I don't eat between meals simply because it's easier for me, and there's no medical reason for me to eat more than three times a day. I eat on schedule, by the clock. And that's what I do with that. When I go out to eat, I order moderately and I eat it all. I do not leave a plate, uh, a bite on my plate for God. Uh, and do not ask me to share. When, when John and I go to restaurants, you know, like Chinese restaurants where people customarily share, and John will order something and I will order something and they'll bring serving utensils and I, we have to laugh. I had John his and I take mine and we eat. Uh, I get up at about 5 o'clock in the morning I start taking phone calls at 5.30 and I'm on the phone until 8. So I'm on the phone at least two and a half hours a day, five days a week with other compulsive overeaters. Is that uh, too many people to sponsor? Hell yes it is, uh, but I'm stuck with them, you know, because they don't seem to be going anywhere. And I I have the privilege of sponsoring several women who uh, have like 20 or more years of abstinence, and you would think that would make my life easier, but it doesn't. They're they're crazy ladies, and I love them dearly. Uh, I take outreach calls. And I am in, involved in service above the medium level. Um, I went to my I went to intergroup meetings for over 20 years, and I finally said, "Oh my God, not another one." And uh, I, I I stopped going to intergroup, but uh, I continued to give service above the meeting level, basically uh, reaching to conventions, and uh, I'm chairing a retreat this year. I am committed to Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. It's important to me to feel a part of the whole. It's not enough for me to sit in my very cozy, very loving, and very good Saturday morning Lomita meeting and say, that's it. Doesn't work that way. Not for me. And that, in, in essence, this is what I do on a daily basis. Do I go? I don't go to a lot of meetings. I use my time with people to do literature. Right now, I'm doing Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers with one person. Another person, we're doing the stories, the news stories in the big book. I do, they're not really new anymore. It's been out a while, but you know, the ones that got put in in the fourth edition. And with another person, I'm doing the uh, the OA 12 and 12. 
So then I, I get my literature um, and sponsor. I get, you know, I get to multitask a little bit. And, and in essence, that's it. Uh, last few minutes. Does anybody have a question? Thank you, Ida. You're Oh, have I ever had struggles in my marriage, and how did I deal with it? Well, first of all, my husband is here. <laughs> he has, we've been married for 27 years. And if you do the math, you will realize that I was in program, you know, and he was very lucky that I had two years of abstinence when I met him. He came to his first meeting three weeks after our first date, so, and he saw my fat pictures before we ever went out, so there's no way that he could ever say, I didn't know what I was getting into, because he knew what he was getting into. As a matter of fact, I'll get to the bad part in a minute. But the first, yes, I do. The first gift my husband ever gave me was a trip to the psychiatrist. He was hoping the guy could help me with my eating problem. And uh, the man was very impressed with me, as a matter of fact. And he said, you're doing very well. And he said, unfortunately, I don't do very well with my obese patients. And I said to him, that's because they're still eating. And he looked at me mystified and sent us on our way. Okay, so uh, we've, owned, we've had a – John and I don't fight often, but let me tell you, when we do, we really do. And about six years ago, okay, he's 86. Now everybody goes, what? Yeah, okay. Uh, for his 80th birthday, I wanted to give him a party. And uh, all of a sudden, my husband goes crazy. The house has to be finished. I don't know why. I mean, I've been living in a construction zone for 17 years. <laughs> the house has to be finished. This has to be done. This has to be done. And he start, He just became absolutely manic, and that's the truth. And it was absolutely frightening. And we were just, we were fighting over this and fighting, and he didn't want to have a party. And, and it was just awful. It was really awful. And uh, finally, he made himself sick. So that the night before the party, he was in emergency with pneumonia. He was hooked up to wires and monitors and an IV and the whole thing. And I had been telling him that, to take better care of himself for weeks. And he wouldn't, you know, we were fighting, so he wasn't listening. And we're sitting there, and I'm sitting there next to his bed, and I said, John, I'm only going to say this once, which was a lie. John, I'm only going to say this once, and I'm never going to say it again. I told you so. And you know who really loves to tell that story? He does. But our fight didn't stop. I had to cancel the party. He was really sick. Knowing what I know now, he, he should have been in the hospital. So finally one day I turned to him and I said, I think we should go to counseling. And he 
to much to my surprise, agreed. So I found a counselor, and we went. And at our first session, she starts talking about divorce, and we're going, is she out of her mind? You know, we're, we're so far we're so far away from divorce. It's ridiculous. We're ready to kill each other. But you know, divorce, <laughs> divorce, divorce never enters the picture. <laughs> and I let her know right up front that I was a member of Overeaters Anonymous, and she asked me, "Do you really think you still need that? You know, people do outgrow it." That was my. You know, I'll never forget that. But we went. We had five sessions. We talked. She. She drew boundaries, you know, she, uh, he had to talk, I had to talk, you know, we didn't, there were, there was no crosstalk, I mean, she, we really listened to each other, and after the fifth session, she said, you can't come back, you are too healthy, (laughs) and dismissed us, goodbye. And uh, John likes to say that I work two programs, mine and his. <laughs> and he is not a member of Overeaters Anonymous. He doesn't have to write inventory. Uh, the last time we had a fight, he told me to call my sponsor. <laughs> no, it's not bad, but it was... <laughs> But, but anyhow, you know, when he tells me to call my sponsor, and it's when I really, you know, I'm going to kill him. Or when he refers to something in the big book, you know. <laughs> You've never read it, you know. Uh, I remember once, uh, many years ago, I was getting ready to leave, uh, go do something, and we had been having some kind of tip or whatever, and I made some crack about oh, going out and finding another guy. And John says to me, I'm not worried your program wouldn't stand it. (laughs) And you know what? He's absolutely right, you know. Uh, But um, so actually what, what I do is I write inventory and I give it to my sponsor. And John is not my sponsor. He's my husband. Um, And, uh, you know, I work it out like that. And what he does with our problems, he, we, we, you know, we talk. We've been married a long time. And uh, we were both older. He, uh, he was 20 years between marriages. And if it, he knows that if it wasn't for me, the program of Overeaters Anonymous, he'd be dead. And uh, I believe that absolutely because he's had cancer and he's had strokes. And... Uh, Without me in the program of Overeaters Anonymous, he'd be dead. That's it. Well, two minutes. Uh, is there a, another question? There aren't any questions. Oh, yes, sir. Oh, you want to talk about step three? Step three? Is that like related to step two in higher power? and? <laughs> Well, I quit praying several years ago because it just didn't make any sense to me. The only time I, I pray is when I go, oh, my God. Or uh, at meetings, I, I, I say the 
prayers at meetings is part of being part of the fellowship. And I believe the purpose of prayer is to bring people together. I don't know that has any effect anywhere else, and it doesn't matter. Uh, I am a skeptic. I'm a skeptic to the core, and I can trace it back exactly to where I know where I'm where I became a skeptic was with astronomy when I first learned that, you know, I'm looking at a star up there and uh, the star I think I'm looking at is, may or may not exist anymore and what I'm really seeing is the light that that star put out billions of light years ago. And I became aware of, you know, of what I'm looking at. You know, by the time that the light reflects from that wall to my eyes, and then I can see that wall there. That wall has changed. So what I'm seeing is never what is real. <laughs> that, that I was an existentialist in college. You can understand how all this all ties together. But uh, so I just, I've just never, I haven't had a, a personal God for for years. And it has it affected my abstinence? Not one bit. Has anybody that I sponsor fired me because I don't have a personal God? No, I sponsor uh, practicing Catholics, born-again Christians, uh, Jews, uh, you know, everybody all over the map. And uh, that's the way that is. However, I do know that I am not God. And I do know that... Uh, by myself, I am bound to fail. Yes. What do you do? If I get a dumb question, but what do you do um, when you weigh and measure your fluid and you have your, your whatever cup of ice cream and you're if there's more there and you want more and you get that like bucket mentality? I don't know if you get that, but what do you do if you want more than your weight and measure? Mm. Actually, I don't put ice cream in a cup. I weigh out 155 grams. <laughs> I've got a digital scale. Um, I wait to the next meal, and I have whatever I want again. You know, uh, somebody that I really didn't like many years ago taught me a great lesson. He said at a meeting, he said, uh, I can eat anything I want. I just can't eat it all at one time. So if I if, and by the way, one of the ways that I know that I am... Uh, I have an abnormal, I have an allergy to food, is that I have an abnormal reaction. And my abnormal reaction takes the form of getting hungry when I eat. If I'm eating something that makes me hungry, then, I've, then that food is a problem, okay? But if I, you know, if I want to eat oatmeal three times today because I didn't get enough for breakfast, who cares? You know, that's what I do. And I'm running over. So I'm done. Thank you. Thank you.